0: Okay, good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 3? Tonight in our study in the book of Revelation, we come to chapter 3, verse 7, and to the sixth letter of the seven that Jesus dictated to the churches of Asia Minor. There's an old saying in Christian circles, there's no such thing as a perfect church. But if you do find one, don't join it, you'll ruin it. Now, having said that, the Church of Philadelphia wasn't perfect, but it was a good church. It was a sincere church, and most importantly, it was a faithful church. This was a church that was living for the Lord in such a way that along with the Church of Smyrna, Jesus had nothing bad to say about it. Commentator and author John Phillips gives us insight into the church of philadelphia he said and i quote the church at philadelphia was weak but it was wonderful there is not the slightest hint of rebuke from the lord nothing but praise is given it was a revival church it had experienced an evangelical revival it had a world vision it had experienced an ecclesiastical revival the disruptive, deadening influence of those who would have snared the church with Judaistic ritualism and legalism had been overcome. It had experienced an eschatological revival. The truth of the Lord's imminent return was its beacon light. Thus the Lord stands before this church to offer not blame, but blessing. Not the threat of a fearful vengeance, but the thrill of a fresh vision." And so the church of Philadelphia, verse 7 and to the angel, we believe that's a reference to the senior or lead pastor, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. Let me stop there and give you a little background about, first of all, the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia sat at the end of a long corridor. Actually, it was a valley. Uh, As we have talked uh, in previous studies, uh, the. Main valley in that area was the Hermus River Valley, where Sardis and Smyrna were located, and uh, though that valley went from uh, west to east, and at one point a smaller tributary river, uh, the Cogmus River, broke off and ran down a valley to the southeast, and that's where uh, the city of Philadelphia lie in the at the end of that uh, of that river valley, the Cogmus River Valley, and. Um, Because Philadelphia was situated uh, in a strategic place, Uh, let me just say this, the city uh, lay about 30 miles um, south of Sardis, okay, Uh, that's where the city of Philadelphia was, but Philadelphia was situated in a strategic place on a, a main Roman route, it was called the Imperial Post Route. It was probably called that because, again, this was a circuit. Starting with Ephesus, you went north as far as Pergamus, and then you started to come back down again to Philadelphia, and then finally Laodicea. It actually was a postal route, kind of, a, um, uh, kind of an oblong, uh, circular route that they would deliver mail in uh, uh, on that route. And uh, I, I, when it hit Philadelphia it kind of became a thoroughfare leading up to Upper Asia Minor. And uh, that road then led all the way to the Far East, basically. And a very important strategic road. And because of it, uh, Philadelphia was called the Gateway to the East. Now, because it was the gateway or the doorway to Upper Asia Minor, the city became a missionary center, but not like you think. Okay. It was a missionary center from which to spread the Greek language and culture all throughout Asia. However, the church in Philadelphia had a heart to reach the lost and made it a missionary center from which to spread the gospel. Now, from what I understand, Philadelphia was located in a place where the soil was very fertile. And uh, there were beautiful laurel trees and all kinds of different flowers that grew there. Uh, From what I understand, just about anything you can imagine that could grow uh, would flourish there, and did flourish there, a very beautiful place aesthetically. So the city was aesthetically beautiful, but it did have a dark side. It was also called Little Athens because um, of the many pagan temples in the city. One of the city's claim to fame was a, a, a particular wine they produced, In fact, one of their patron deities was Dionysus, the god of wine. So it gives you a little insight into what some of the recreational pastime was there in Philadelphia. Uh, The city was founded in 189 B.C. by a a man named Eumenus II. When he died, he was succeeded by his younger brother, Atalus II. Now, Atalus so loved his older brother, Eumenus, that when he died, he had um, buildings named after his brother. He minted coins with his brother's image on it. He talked constantly about his brother. And consequently, the people of the town began to call this place Phileo Adelphos. Or in other words, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo love Adelphos, brother, the city of brotherly love. Well, in 17 A.D., a great earthquake struck the entire area, and uh, it totally destroyed Philadelphia, the city. But not just Philadelphia. It also destroyed Sardis and 10 other cities throughout the area. So it really leveled the entire area. Tiberius, the emperor at that time, allocated a vast sum of money for the rebuilding of all 12 cities. And they were subsequently restored. And in gratitude for Caesar Tiberius's financial uh, aid in rebuilding uh, the city of Philadelphia, but the other eleven others also, these cities got together and erected a great monument to Caesar Tiberius. Uh, the people of Philadelphia wanted to go beyond that, and so they wound up naming their city, changing the name from Philadelphia to Neo Caesarea, which basically means the new city of Caesar. And it stayed that way for a number of years, although a few decades later, the city was uh, changed. The name of it was changed to Flavia in honor of the ruling Roman imperial family at that time. The Church of Philadelphia lasted longer than any other of the churches of Asia Minor. In fact, from what I understand, there is still a small Christian presence there to this day. But the city was eventually conquered by the Turks in 1392 and is still a town of considerable size called Al-Shahir, which is Arabic for the city of God." Not our God, but the Muslim God, Allah. Well, again, the church. We, we don't really know from the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament doesn't give us any information as to uh, how the church was founded or even when. Again, we believe it probably started as an outreach of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Check out Acts 19 because uh, as Paul uh, spent three years in Ephesus, longer than any other place, we read in Acts 19 how that he'd work in the morning and then all afternoon he would teach in the school of Tyrannus. He would be discipling converts. And of course, they went out constantly to various places in Asia Minor, maybe farther, and began churches. probable that one of these disciples of Paul uh, who had been discipled in Ephesus, which wasn't that far from Philadelphia, went out and started the city there it doesn't matter the holy spirit started the city but you understand okay um as i just said philadelphia means love of the brethren or is this more accurate more commonly uh referred to the city of brotherly love a beautiful title because obviously as christians that should be something that should uh, characterize us individually in our churches uh collectively and um, that we represent you know we know agape love is god's love it's unconditional sacrificial and so on right well phileo is a greek word that means friendship or brotherly love right isn't it wonderful when a church likes each other you said well isn't that obvious don't all churches like each other not necessarily i mean the people in that church like each other you'd be surprised some people have grown up in a particular church. They families have been in for generations. Uh, they tolerate each other. Uh, you don't think so? You should check out some of the board meetings, which are t- usually congregational. And uh, you know, if nobody gets out of there with a bloody nose, that's a you're, it was a good night. Okay, I mean seriously. So I'm thankful for our church because there's a lot of brother. Yes, I I I, I pray agape love is here. But there's a lot of brotherly love. In other words, we love each other. We're family. And and it's reciprocal love. We do for each other because we love each other. And so I thank God for that. But that should characterize all of God's churches, right? But as much as it's great to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, it's not enough. It's not enough. God wants us to love the lost world around us too. I mean, as Jesus said, it's easy to love those who love you. What more do do you do then unbelievers who love each other they love their families they love their friends we have to love those who are unlovable those that are rough around the edges those that maybe have nothing good to say about us these are the unbelievers that we work with and our neighbors too and so on it's very important because it's the heart of god god so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, and He wants us to have that same love. It's in us. Romans 5, verse 5 tells us it was poured into us when we gave our heart to Christ. We don't have to tap into it. We don't have to utilize it. But we have the capacity to love with God's love if we we want to, by His grace. So God wants us to love a lost world and to reach unbelievers with the good news. And this church had a heart to do that. They had a heart to reach the lost around them. And so God, therefore, set before them is we're going to see an open door. What exactly is this open door? Well, we'll talk about that. However, just to kind of set the tone, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, Paul said that God had set before him an open door, and there were many adversaries. And that was an open door for evangelism. And I do believe it goes hand in hand with the open door, although there may be some variations to what God was talking about. But I think one of the things definitely was that God had given this church an open door for evangelism because they had a heart for the lost. Why should God give us something when we don't have a desire? I mean, if we have a desire to reach people with the gospel, God will give us the grace. He'll give us the opportunities. And I do believe that was a big part of what this Open Door was all about. Now, as we come to the letter to the church in Philadelphia, we come to the period of church history covering the 18th and 19th centuries. During the 18th and 19th centuries, if you've ever read church history, you know. These were times of mighty revivals and great missionary movements that were happening around the world. William Carey goes down in history as the father of the modern missionary movement as the church seems to have around this time woken out of its missionary sleep lethargy and got set on fire by the power of the Holy Spirit to begin to reach the world around them for Christ. One church historian writes and I quote, two books sat in the London shop of a young cobbler. Cobbler was a shoemaker, right? A well-worn Bible and Captain Cook's journal. Now, Captain Cook was a royal officer, a captain in the British Royal Navy, and the Queen sent him and his crew over to the to the Pacific uh, to uh, you know you know do some things and set up a, a, some kind of a base in Tahiti, I think it was, but uh, just to kind of uh, you know do a little work where you just checking things out and discovering things. So he kept a journal. And it read like uh, you know an Indiana Jones novel or something. It was really exciting. And Carry and had a big map stuck up on his cobbler shop wall. And as he was cobbling shoes, he'd be looking at this map and, and dreaming of the day where he can maybe go to a faraway place and, and share Christ with people. Well, you know how that goes. God begins to give you a burden, and it just grows and grows until it consumes you. And so the author goes on, as the days went by, the cobbler found himself losing interest in working on the soles of shoes and caring more about the souls of men in regions far away. Great line. So deep was the passion that stirred within him that on May 31st, 1793, he walked into the little Protestant church he attended and said to the pastor, could I please share for a minute? Allowed to speak a word, he read Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3, which read, we must lengthen the cords, we must must strengthen the stakes. And the idea, what God was talking about, is he was going to expand the covenant that he had made with Israel. He was going to expand it to include, at one point, the Gentiles, the new covenant, right? And so Kerry read that and he said, you know, the tent of the church needs to be expanded. We need to to have people from all over the world come and be members of the church. And so he read from Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. And then he preached passionately. The author said, we must include others who have never heard. I want to go. Send me to India. His request stunned his congregation. After all, it had been 1,000 years since anyone had launched a foreign missionary endeavor. Think about that. A 1,000 years. But their surprise didn't stop Carey's congregation from sending him to India. In the first 10 years, he became fluent in 12 languages. One of his works, the Bible, he translated into Sanskrit, is still used to this day. End quote. Folks, this goes to show that you don't have to be highly educated to serve God. You need to be, though, highly motivated and available as an instrument that God can use. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, when Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, I said, Here am I, send me. Remember 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. Which says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Guys, when ordinary people allow an extraordinary God to use them for his glory and to build his kingdom, anything is possible. So report for duty and see what God will do in your life. Here am I, Lord, send me. The Church of Philadelphia speaks of this age, of church history, beginning in the 1800s when men like William Carey went to India, Hudson Taylor went to China, of course DL Moody was reaching out to America but then sailed across the Atlantic to do crusades in England and Scotland and Ireland. Of course he was a contemporary of C.H. Spurgeon who was ministering in London, his hometown, but his reach reached throughout all of England and beyond. So these were exciting times is what I'm saying. This is a time in church history when missionaries were being sent out all over the place and the lost were being saved. They were coming to Christ in faraway places. Again, a very exciting period of church history. I'm not saying that none of that continues today. It certainly does. But this was a special time in the history of the church. It seems like the Holy Spirit was being poured out and moving in the hearts of people to go out and to share the God. People wanted to go into all the earth, all uttermost parts of the earth, as Jesus said would happen, you know, when the Spirit comes upon you, be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. This was the fulfillment of that. An incredible time. The Holy Spirit was moving in a mighty way through world missions. The letter to Philadelphia speaks of a church that had that heart. And as I said earlier, it was one of only two letters to the seven churches in which Jesus has nothing critical to say the other being the letter to the church of Smyrna now as we said earlier we know the church of Philadelphia wasn't a perfect church there aren't any perfect churches so why didn't the Lord Jesus find you know, maybe a little something to correct them with Okay, I don't know I don't know I know they weren't perfect so why didn't the Lord pick on a little something to correct them for I don't know Perhaps it was because the Philadelphian Christians were involved in evangelism. In other words, they were loving the lost. And as Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4 8, love covers a multitude of sins. Now, guys, from the Sardis period of church history, the Reformation period, flows two streams. Flows two streams. The church of the open door, chapter 3, verse 8. And then the church of the closed door, chapter 3, verse 20. The first is the church of Philadelphia, where Jesus said in verse 8, I have set before you an open door. And the second was the church of Laodicea, where Jesus said in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Two churches, Philadelphia being the church of the open door, Laodicea being the church of the closed door, closed even to Jesus. And I believe what's in view here is the evangelical church and the liberal church. The last four churches of these seven are going to be around when the rapture happens. He admonishes each of the four to hold fast till I come. And as we have said, I believe these four churches, Thyatira represents the Roman Catholic Church, Sardis represents the Protestant Church, Philadelphia, the Evangelical Church, and then Laodicea, the Liberal Church. Verse 7 again. And to the angel of the church of Phil- in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now, guys, the Lord Jesus Christ was the divine author of these seven letters. And as we have seen in the previous studies in Revelation 2 and then beginning of chapter 3, he always opens these letters with an introduction of himself, something that Pertains to his character, something that was taken from the vision that John saw in chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. Remember how he pulls something out of that vision to call himself by, which kind of sets the tone for that particular letter. Here is something that is unique about this letter. He doesn't do that with this letter, he doesn't take anything from the vision of chapter 1 to call himself by. Instead, he takes a description of himself. This is unique now. He takes a description of himself from Isaiah chapter 22. Now before we look at that, let's first look at the statement by Jesus where he says of himself, These things says he who is holy. Holy. I don't know if you realize this, but that statement by Jesus was a statement affirming his deity. His deity. Because absolute holiness is an attribute of God and God alone. Isaiah 6 verse 3 solemnly declares, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, we see the four living creatures around the throne of God saying nonstop, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In, in theology, it's wrong to put one attribute of God kind of against another. It, it's wrong because God, God is not lacking in anything. So if he has some mercy, he's got to have all mercy. If he has some love, he's got to have all love. If he has any holiness, he has to be completely holy because that's just the nature of God, right? So, you know, but having said that, you know, when we think of God, we think maybe of uh, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. And we think that attribute defines him more than anything else. And certainly it is a powerful attribute and we thank God for his love. But of all the attributes the angels could have chanted uh, around the throne of God, They didn't chant love 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 is the lord god almighty or merciful 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 they chanted holy 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 now i know it's wrong in theology to put holiness above the others like it was he was more holy than anything else but you know that's the one attribute that god chose to have the angels call him by so that's the one we need to understand right and it it is a declaration of divinity because only god is absolutely holy right to say that god is holy because people what does that mean exactly that's a good question to say that god is holy is to say that he is utterly separate from sin utterly separate from sin that he is absolutely untouched by any moral impurity that his character is absolutely unblemished and flawless flawless Or as John put it in his first epistle, chapter 1, verse 5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Jesus' identification of himself as he who is holy not only is a claim of deity, but it's also a call to his church to be holy. Holy. He is the head of his body. The body of Christ on the earth is his church. He is the head. If the head is holy, it stands to reason the body must be holy as well, or that should be the goal, right? Peter said it in 1 Peter 1, verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In fact, the writer to the Hebrews, who I believe was Paul, makes this incredible and somewhat unnerving statement when he said in Hebrews 12, 14, Pursue peace, talking to his church now, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now let me just camp on that for a minute because that verse troubles and terrifies many Christians. Because they believe what God is saying is if we don't measure up to a certain level of holiness, we're not going to make it into heaven. And so they believe that God is teaching their salvation by works, in this case, holiness, which is a little hard to define depending on who you talk to, certain groups have, you know, lists. Okay? And depending on the group, the lists get rather long of things that you can't do and must do to you know reach that level of holiness that will get you into heaven but again we are not saved by our works all right the word holiness is a word that means to be set apart and is also translated in the new testament as sanctify or sanctification as we have said before there is a positional holiness and a practical holiness very important you understand the difference by the way What is positional holiness? Well, if the word means to be set apart, then positional holiness is when you gave your heart to Jesus Christ and God took you out of the world and set you over into his family as his own special person. You now belong to the family of God. As the Bible says, you were translated from darkness to light. You were taken from the realm of Satan as one of his children and now became a child of God living in his kingdom, right? So that would be positional holiness. You're in Christ, in other words. You you gave your heart to Jesus and he took you out of the world and you were placed by the Holy Spirit in Christ. You've been set apart now positionally. Practical holiness is when you seek to draw away from the world every day to live a life that is consecrated to God. You draw away from the world's way of thinking, the world's kind of jokes and language and what the world is entertained by you you pull away from all of that and you draw close to god because that's the goal to keep drawing closer and closer to god because as you do that second corinthians three eighteen, the holy spirit conforms you more and more into the image of jesus christ that's practical holiness okay it's ongoing and it won't be complete until the trumpet sounds the angel shouts and the lord jesus has come up here and on the way up and it's not going to be a long ride we receive our glorified bodies, and the holiness will be made complete. We will now be completely separate. See, we're saved. Now, we have been separated unto God, right? But we still live in a body of flesh. We, we can't separate from this body. It's, it's, we can't do it. The Lord Jesus has to do it by giving us a new body, that glorified body. And so when he does, when he, the rapture happens and we are uh, immediately taken up to to see him in the clouds in the air and we see him face to face and we're made like him we get our new glorified body at that instant we jettison the old flesh now we are completely separate from everything that sin affected in our lives and we'll be now completely holy and consecrated to god forever now, i believe paul has in mind in hebrews 12:14 practical holiness practical holiness which doesn't earn us our salvation but becomes listen a fruit of our salvation in other words it describes a life let me just say this before you got well i can't speak for you i can only speak for me before i got saved i had no desire to live a holy life okay i mean i wasn't as bad as some guys but i certainly wasn't a holy person I mean, I did whatever I needed to do to be happy and get the things I wanted and so on and so forth. I'm not proud of, of some of the things I did. Again, I wasn't as bad as some, but certainly uh, I was no, you know, I was no saint. Um, but once she gave her heart to Christ, the Holy Spirit moves in and he begins to work on us. And part of that is she gives us a desire to start drawing away from the world i mean if you are serious in your walk with god and i assume you are because you're here tonight uh you want to draw close to the lord that's why you do your morning devotions that's why you come to bible study that's why you like to hang out to each uh, with each other as uh, brothers and sisters in christ could you keep yourselves accountable and you you encourage one another and so on all of that is the result of the holy spirit living inside of you and as the holy spirit moves in at the moment of salvation uh, then the life of God begins to begins to grow through us, right? The the seed has been planted. The Holy Spirit was in is in us, and now the life of the Spirit begins to work its way from the inside of our hearts to our outward lives, in the area of fruit, right? But this is what we're talking about. It describes uh, somebody who, and I believe Paul was saying, look, if you're not mas- ma- manifesting some holiness in your life, and again you know jesus said uh you'll know them by their fruit now not every christian has the same amount of fruit as another christian okay i mean you look at some christians my goodness i mean they're like like you know an orchard of apple trees and you find another christian you got to look around pretty hard to find a couple shriveled raisins but it's there there's some fruit because any fruit describes a person who is saved now, now, Jesus in John 15 is the Father's desire that we bear fruit, more fruit, and what? Much fruit. That's the sanctification process that we live with, you know, that we're walking in every day, right? But it's that this desire to draw away from the world to live a life of purity, to live a life that honors God, a life that draws closer and closer to God and farther and farther from the world, guys, this is a mark of genuine saving faith in a person's heart. And that's what I believe Paul was talking about. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. In other words, if there's no fruit, again, you'll know them by their fruit. If there's no fruit in your life indicating that the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, well, you're not going to see God because you don't know God. Look for the fruit. Holiness is one of those, outward practical holiness is one of those fruits. Now, we read, Jesus said, These things says he who is holy, he who is true. The word for true is the Greek word alethinos, which denotes that which is genuine, authentic, and real. Guys, we're living in a world where very little is real except for God, His coming kingdom, and on the flip side, coming judgment for unbelievers. We are living in a world that is nothing more than a facade, an illusion, a lie. Years ago, we took our family to Florida on vacation. One of the things we did was we spent a day at Universal Studios. And one of the things we did was to jump on a tram and they took us to some of these movie backlots. And one of them was a western backlot where they would shoot western movies, right? Now the tram went down the street and on either side were these western looking saloon, a bank, different buildings, right? And you look at them from just going down the street looking at them straight on you look like it looked like a city or a a town a real town right and then they took us behind and you saw that these buildings were just facades they were held up by a few two-by-fours they were an illusion they gave the illusion that there was a town but really it was not a town at all what looked like a reality was nothing more than a fantasy. Nothing more than a facade, and guys, the devil has made this world look very real. It's nothing more though than a facade, a grand illusion that the devil has cooked up to make people, the people of this world, think that this world will bring them happiness. It has the ability to bring them happiness and uh, and provide them with the things that you know their empty hearts desire. But again, it's a lie. It's a deception. Uh, The Bible talks about the deceitfulness of riches. If I only had enough, right, Rockefeller, John Rockefeller, you know, worked I don't know, he was a multimillionaire at a time when that was really something. Uh, And, uh, you know, uh, one time a newspaper reporter said to him, Mr. Rockefeller, you're a millionaire, yet you're working 16, 18 hours a day. I mean, how much money is enough? To which Rockefeller said, just a little more. It's the deceitfulness of riches. I'm not happy, even though I've got all this money, but maybe a little more. Uh, money, little more material things, and I'll really achieve happiness. It's an illusion. It's a lie. And the God of this world has designed this world to make everything look uh, like it is a reality, like it's real, but it's not. It's nothing but a facade held up by, you know, two-by-fours, I guess. Only Jesus is the truth. In the midst of the falsehood, perversion, and error that fills this world, the Lord Jesus Christ, and this is what he is saying to us, the Lord Jesus Christ is the truth because he's God. Remember what he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody, nobody comes to the Father except through me. That was also a statement of deity. Jesus Christ is the truth because he is God Almighty. And we know that he is God Almighty the word of God tells us so, not the least of which we read in Colossians chapter one verse fifteen, which says He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The Greek word, therefore, "image," is a word that was used of uh, Caesar's image uh, on some kind of a die, and then they would stamp coins uh, down on this die, and it would impress, or you know, Caesar's image uh, on this coin. Well, that's exactly what God did with Jesus Christ. God stamped his image on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. And where Jesus said to Philip, have, you, have I been with you so long that you would ask me show you the Father? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and my Father are one. He is the image of the invisible God. As John began his, his gospel, he said, you know, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God The same was in the beginning with with God. All things were made by him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. So he is God in human form. And we just mentioned John 14, 9, where he said to Philip, If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Guys, what we're talking about here and what Jesus is saying is that he is the true God, the true and living God. I mean, he is the original, the authentic God. He's not some cheap copy like the Jehovah's Witnesses present. A God that was made. No, my God, Jesus Christ, was the creator of all things. Or the Mormons, that he was really the brother of Lucifer. At one time, a man who became God because he lived an exemplary life. Or, as the many in our society who create a God of their own making, a God after their own image and likeness. We've talked about this. People say, you know, well, God as I perceive him to be is such and such and so and so. Jesus Christ is not the invention of man. He's not a, a cheap copy of God. He is God in human form, the true God. And guys, there were thousands of gods false gods back in those days. In fact, in India, they worshiped 330 million gods. Uh, G- Paul said there are gods many and lords many, but there's only one true and living God and one Lord of lords and King of kings, Jesus Christ. But back then there were thousands of false gods and goddesses, but um, only Jesus could rightfully claim to be the true God. Second Corinthians 4, verse 4, Paul said, Whose minds, the unbelievers, who worship these pagan deities, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So Revelation 3.7, once again, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Guys, not only is Jesus holy and true, as he says here, but he also has authority. Authority given to him by the Father. You can check out Matthew 28, verse 18. And that authority allows him to open and close doors. Well, you're going to open and close doors and the idea is opening the lock and closing them and locking them you need a key you need a key and so he says that he has the key of david a key guys speaks of first of all ownership right i have with me today keys that belong to my house i have them because when i signed the papers to buy my house years ago they gave me keys Now, me and my wife are the only ones who have keys to our house. You don't have keys to my house. If you do, please see me afterward, because there's a problem. But when I bought my house, they handed me keys to it, which spoke of ownership. Now, that ownership also gave me the authority, because I own the house, to give my keys to you if I ask you to please House sit for me while we go on vacation. Will you come over and stay in my house and uh, feed my uh, pets and uh, be there for the Maytag repairman who's coming over next Friday because my washing machine is not working right? At that point, when I give you, I have the authority to do that because it's my I own it. I give you my keys to watch over my house. You become a steward. Keys speak of ownership, but they also speak of stewardship. Where I have given you the authority to take care of something that belongs to me. No, it does not belong to you, but I've authorized you to take care of it. Now you become what the Bible calls a steward. Somebody who takes care of another person's business or property or something to that effect, right? In chapter 1, we read, that Jesus holds, verse 18, the keys of Hades and death. The keys of Hades and death. Now, we talked about that back then, so just, you didn't weren't here to hear that. Go ahead and go online and listen to it. But to this missionary church, he says he holds an additional key. The key of David. The key of David. Which takes us back to the key of the house of David, spoken of in in Isaiah chapter 22. Now, you don't have to turn there. I'll read to you verse 22. You can read the whole chapter on your own. But Isaiah 22, verse 22 says, The key of the house of David, God is talking, I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open, and no one shall shut. And he shall shut, and no one shall open. Now he's talking there about a gentleman named Eliakim. Let me give you the background. Let me give you the context to what the Lord is saying. And again, you can read it on your own this week. Assyria had invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, just as Isaiah the prophet had warned. But the Jewish leaders were trusting in Egypt and not in God to deliver them. That was a problem. And God called them on that several times. Why do you go down to Egypt for help? I mean, why do you look to men for strength to deliver you? You've got me. Why do you put your trust in horses and chariots? Horses are just flesh. They're not spirit. Why do you, don't you come to me? You're my, you're my people. And so on. But that's how far away from God they had moved over the course of many years and their their apostasy that had really taken hold. So Assyria had finally invaded Judah, as Isaiah warned. One of the leaders at that time was a man named Shibna, Shibna, who was the treasurer in the kingdom of Judah during the reign of King Hezekiah, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah at that time. As the treasurer, he held the key of David, literally, The key of David was the key to the palace, but especially to the king's treasury. That's where all the king's treasures were stored. And Shibna had a key to the king's treasury. He had access to these riches, right? Unfortunately, Shibna was an evil man who used his office and the riches of the kingdom not for the good of the people but for his own private gain. And God saw to it that Shibna was removed from office and that a faithful man named Eliakim was put in his place and given the key of David. Eliakim is a type of Jesus Christ. Eliakim was a faithful steward to the house of David as Jesus is a faithful steward over his father's house jesus christ alone holds the key to the messianic kingdom and ultimately the key to heaven in which are stored or kept all the riches of our inheritance remember how peter began his first epistle chapter one talking about that there is a place reserved for us in heaven that never fades away where god has got all of our riches all of our inheritance waiting for us right Jesus Christ has the key to the Messianic kingdom on earth, but ultimately the key which will open the door for a person to enter into heaven and all the riches that will be there as their inheritance. He opens heaven to those who are his people, the children of God, and no one can shut the door and keep them out. You gave your heart to Christ? You're a born-again believer? Nobody, and I repeat, not even you, read romans 8 verses 38 and 9 i believe not even you will keep yourself out of heaven not that we would ever try to do that because if you're a true child of god you're not going to want to try to sin your way out of heaven only unbelievers masquerading as christians would even think of doing something like that right but my point is that if you've given your heart to jesus christ nobody's going to keep you out of heaven that's a door that no one can shut and you will be allowed to enter. In other words, you will be glorified. You will be glorified. He can also shut, Jesus Christ can also shut and lock the door of heaven to keep out those who do not belong to him. You know, it could be, guys, that this key, we heard, hear about the mayors giving special people the key to the city. The key to the city. Okay? It doesn't open anything. To, it's just, you know, it's, it's just symbolic. We're giving you the key that opens all the doors of the city. Well, not really, but it's the idea. is you're, you're welcome anywhere, okay? But it could be that this key is the key to the city. What city? The city of David. Or, as the Bible calls in Revelation 21, the uh, New Jerusalem, where believers will live in this glorious, glorious city for all eternity, Okay? Now, the Lord opens it, again, to those who are his children, but shuts it, keeping all unbelievers out. Turn to Revelation chapter 21 for a second. Because after all of human history is over, and as we are moving now into the eternal state, that's eternity now, all right? we read that in the new heavens, the new earth, the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21.8, the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars are not going to be allowed into this glorious new universe and city. But will have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So those that Jesus opens the door of heaven to will be allowed to enter and nothing will keep them out. And yet any unbeliever, um, no matter how much they desire now, that they realize what is awaiting them, eternal judgment, um, they will be kept out of heaven. And uh, the door will be locked after the last righteous person enters in. The door is locked and only the righteous will dwell in this glorious new city and universe. Once again, guys, when Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, that he has the key of David, it's a reference to him, again, holding the key to the kingdom of heaven, and that reminds us of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16. Please turn there, and I want to just spend the rest of our time Looking at this because I think it's very important, all right? And then we'll pick our, our study up next week. But this idea of the key of David uh, is a reference to Jesus holding the keys, the key to the kingdom of heaven, and it reminds us of what he said to his disciples in Matthew 16. Let's read verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, And also I say to you, that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Haiti shall not prevail against it and I will give you you Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven how are we to understand the the keys and it's plural wait a minute hold on to that thought okay how are we to understand the keys plural of the kingdom of heaven well the reason i want to just talk about this for a little bit as we end tonight before we end is because the roman catholic church teaches that jesus was giving peter as the first pope and then all of his successors after him the line of papal succession giving to peter as the first pope the authority to open the door of salvation that to those in good standing in the Roman Catholic Church, or to shut the door by excommunication, those who commit mortal sins, sins like idolatry, adultery, murder, etc. He has the authority given to him by Jesus. He's got the keys to open the door of heaven to any Catholic in good standing with the Church. Remember, in Catholic theology, salvation only comes through the Church. So you've got to be in good standing in the church, right? No mortal sins. If a Roman Catholic commits a mortal sin, their phrase, their friendship with God, quote unquote, is broken, and they are condemned to hell unless they turn back to him and receive what's called the sacrament of penance. Strict Catholicism teaches that there is no salvation apart from fellowship, the fellowship. Of the Roman Catholic Church and they believe that Jesus gave to Peter the authority the keys to open the door of the church slash salvation heaven to those in good standing with the Roman Catholic Church and to shut and lock the door to those who are not in good standing with the church and this is what is meant they believe by the binding and loosing again verse 19 I will give you Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven you see the jewish rabbis often spoke of binding and loosing in terms of prohibiting and permitting it was a common rabbinic term binding and loosing not nothing to do with the word of faith teaching that you bind the devil and loose blessings okay that's not what it was all about the rabbis spoke of binding and loosing in terms of prohibiting and permitting. And so the Roman Catholic Church teaches that Peter was given this authority to bind and loose, or in other words, to prohibit or permit entrance into heaven to those he deems worthy. Now we talk about, you know, you've heard the jokes, right? They, they come from this idea that, you know, Peter stands right outside the pearly gates examining people that come up to him and he decides whether or not they're worthy to enter into heaven or you know or be cast out now while it's true that jesus gave to peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven here in matthew 16 the power to bind and loose was later expanded by jesus to include the rest of his disciples in matthew chapter 18 verse 18 Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, in the Greek is plural. So he's talking to all of his disciples whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And the context, guys, is church discipline. Is church, don't miss that. I can't tell you how many Christians misinterpret that. Again, context is everything. And in the context of Matthew 18, it's talking about church discipline, where Jesus gave to those who would be leaders in His church. At that time, the apostles, but later on, prophets, and then when apostles and prophets passed off the scene at the end of the first century, then pastors and uh, and elders became the leaders of the church, and the responsibility fell on our shoulders as Jesus is talking about church discipline. He gave to us as leaders of his church the authority to deal with those involved in sin. Now, those involved in sin, when confronted by the leadership, if they repent, then we loose them from any further action. In other words, they're permitted to stay in the church and fellowship. If they refuse to repent, then we have to bind them in the sense that they are Prohibit it from continuing in the church in fellowship with the saints, because a little leaven can live in the whole lump. Of course, we pray for them. We want. We God said, "Look, deliver that." Paul, speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, "Deliver this guy who's living with his stepmother unto Satan. Kick him out of the church. What are you doing? You're not being spiritual and God, you know, you know, loving people with God's love because you allow sin in your midst." Put him out of the church. Let Satan beat up on this guy for a while. And maybe he will be his heart will be tenderized to the point where he runs back, begs for forgiveness, repents of his sin, and then welcome back, him back with open arms. Because the point of church discipline is not to destroy, it's to restore. But sometimes a person who refuses to repent, we have to excommunicate them, disfellowship them for a while. Well, and that's how we bind and loose. The context, again, being church discipline. But again, what about Jesus giving Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven? What does that mean? Well, turn quickly to John chapter 10. We did a whole series on this. We called it the gospel, the key to, the key to salvation. Let me repeat myself again. What, what about Jesus giving Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven? What does that mean? Well, John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is the door that leads to salvation. As we said in that study, any door that leads to something very valuable is locked, right? A bank vault is locked, right? Uh, many of the things that are Standing in the way you know of something you know valuable, very valuable, the door is locked. Jesus is the door of salvation. that door is locked, and you know what the key is that opens the door? I just said it the gospel, the gospel is the key that unlocks the door of salvation and allows a person to enter into salvation into heaven, right? It's the gospel now in Luke 11, verse 52, as we're just about done here, I just want you to, you don't have to turn there. Let me read it to you. In Luke 11:52, 52, Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers. These were doctors of the law. These were the scholars, okay? The PhDs. They were the lawyers, because they knew the law of God very well. They were the experts. But Jesus said, Woe to you, lawyers. You have taken away, listen, the key of knowledge. He's talking about the knowledge that will save people or the gospel. You have taken away, because Jesus was given the gospel. He was providing the key that would lead to salvation. They just had to embrace it in their heart and so on. And here comes the doctors of the law, the big shots, you know, the lawyers. were putting this stuff down, putting Jesus down. He's not the Messiah. You're crazy to believe in, you know. And, and they were removing the knowledge from the hearts of these people. But you have taken away the key of knowledge, the gospel. You did not enter in. You didn't enter the kingdom yourself. And those who were entering, you hindered. Well, in some cases, you flat out stopped. Yes, but Jesus said keys. If the key is the gospel when you say keys to the kingdom of heaven are you telling us there's more than one gospel no there's only one key that unlocks the door of salvation that's jesus christ the gospel jesus right he's the door but the gospel of jesus christ is what opens that door allows a person to be saved so what about this keys plural well in matthew 16 when jesus told peter he was given him the keys of the kingdom I believe, and I'm not alone. I believe that Peter, Jesus was giving Peter the privilege of opening, listen, the door of salvation through the preaching of the gospel, first of all, to the Jews at Pentecost that had come from all over the known world. Acts 2, right? He preached to Jewish pilgrims and they got saved. And then in Acts chapter 8, God allowed him to open the door of of the kingdom to the Gentiles as he shared the gospel with Cornelius and his family, all right? And then later on to the Gentiles, I'm sorry, to the Samaritans in Acts 8, and then later on in Acts 10 to the Gentiles. It wasn't three different gospels. It was the gospel used three different times in three different groups, keys of the kingdom of heaven. It's the same truth, okay? Now, later on, The other apostles shared this privilege as well. Paul had the privilege of opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles outside of Israel. Check out Acts 14, verse 27. And then, guys, in the broadest sense, Jesus has given all of his disciples, all of us, the keys of the kingdom. When he told us to go into all the world, he commissioned us, the Great Commission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every person. Do it with your life, first of all. And then with your words. But go into all the world. Each of us has been given the keys of the kingdom. uh, The gospel that we can use many times over to see the door of salvation unlocked to many different people. So guys, I, I believe the Roman Catholic Church is wrong about how they interpret Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. And that Peter was not the first pope and if you want to really dig into this in some detail, I encourage you to go online and find our Matthew study. The one we you know, this was a series we did from 2010 to 2014, but the, the two studies I want you to key in on uh, were given in, in 2013. All right, 2013, May of 2013, and um, it's parts one and two, with the title "Did Jesus Really Make Peter the First Pope?" You know, you got to be a little controversial. Um, you know, people tune in there. But um, did Jesus, because the Catholic Church, Matthew 16 says, absolutely. And when I gave that study, I told the, our church, look, I hate straw men arguments. I hate to put words in people's mouths. I, I hate to erect these false arguments that they supposedly make, and I easily knock it down. I didn't want to do that. So I went online and I spent I don't know how many hours on Catholic websites, true Catholic websites. And I listened to Catholic programs where they were debating this issue or talking about this issue. And I listened and they had some good points. But I'm telling you, all of that went into that study because I wanted to give you some true, um, you know, I didn't want to just, you know, look how smart I am. And, and, you know, boom, 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 with a few jabs, I was able to knock him up because I'm so smart. And, uh, you know, no, I wanted, you know, th- there's a lot of very intelligent Catholic apologists, much smarter than me. But they've embraced something I think is, I-, I know is an error. So, you know, check it out if you'd like. But that's why I wanted to spend a little time on this because they, they go to these passages were these keys of the kingdom. They trace it back to Matthew 16. Oh, that's Peter but he was made the first pope. And, you know, and he has the authority to let people into heaven based on if they're in good standing in the church. No. No. Okay, I got that out of my system. Next week, we will continue with the letter to the Church of Philadelphia. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Because our Savior is truth and he is the word. We praise you, Lord, that in a world of darkness, and it's getting ever more darker, Lord, more lies, more deceptions, flooding into this world, that we have the truth that will set, well, has set us free and will set others free who have been taken captive by the devil to do as well. So we thank you for your word, Lord. We pray that you would give us an insatiable hunger for it as we go forward and as we see the finish line, line coming up in front of us, That we will stay firmly rooted and grounded in your word. That, Lord, we might be able to withstand in these evil days, the attacks of the devil, having done all to stand. Which means we plant our feet firmly on the solid ground of your truth, of your word. So thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.